man you'll have to put up with for six plus hours next week. Pete Callender, how you doing, man? I am well. Top of the morning to you. How are you? Uh, you know, just uh, just grinding out uh, the last hour. You've done radio shows for the worst. of a vacation. Yeah. And you're just like, why is everything slow? <laughs> yeah. Oh. So when normally if you're you got a bunch of great stuff you want to talk about, you just there's not enough minutes in the day. But yeah, uh, here's where we find ourselves. All right. Uh, boy, where do I even start? Let's well, let's start with the big news of the week. And, you know, yesterday on the show, we opened a special hotline so that all of these teachers who got really mad at me hmm. could call the show and apologize because I was right. Um, I predicted that the governor would do this with the. Uh, with the teachers, it would be political. And at the end of the day, even if they were provided the vaccine, there would still be a whole bunch that still don't want to go back to the classroom. And I don't I don't know how much you've uh, dug into this story, but um, is it wrong to say that that was a very political? Uh, re, what did you call it? reprioritization? Yeah, it's a re, yeah, where it's people a, are yeah. privileged. If you, it, you you could call it privileged okay right well, the governor privileged me. them above the other seven categories inside of group three right because the first group right. is 65 and older and then the second one is the healthcare workers and they're still going to keep doing those those are still the top priorities but now they're going to start uh in two weeks they're going to allow teachers to skip ahead of everybody else that's in group three uh, which includes, you know, police officers, uh, mm-hmm. grocery store workers, restaurant workers, delivery drivers. I had a guy who drives a truck for FedEx. He was like, so wait a minute, I've been working for 11 months as an essential worker. I don't get a vaccine immediately. Like, what's up with that? How, how come the teachers got bumped to the head of the line, particularly when Cooper is making this case that they don't need vaccines to open safely for the schools to open safely? It's a fair question, and and one that did not get asked by the media, which is why? No. Why did it? No. I know. I know. On, no. So you made a prediction about this. I made a prediction too. So I wake up and I uh, I open up the Twitter machine and I see, oh look at that, Cooper's going to be doing a press conference, another briefing, but twenty four hours after he just did his last one, so something has obviously mm-hmm. changed. Like maybe a piece of legislation made its way through one of the chambers. I don't know. But something changed. And here was my prediction. I said, this was at 9 a.m. I said, uh, he creates a new subgroup to promise teachers the earlier vaccine. He says schools should reopen in the meantime. The NCAE, the teachers union, don't call it a union, but it's a union. They're going to agree to it. They're going to celebrate it. And then they get to keep hammering the GOP for more money. And all of right. that came true. All of that came. And look, I'm not a rocket scientist here. OK, it was obvious uh, what was going to happen because the two groups. So you got Cooper and you got the, the teachers union and they ended up in this awkward standoff because all of the evidence was saying open schools and Cooper's getting squeezed by parents who are ready to take up pitchforks to reopen schools. And you got the Republicans that are uh, passing the legislation and they jammed him up on it. So he needs a way out. But now you got the teachers union that's been using the reentry anxiety, as they said in their uh, their PowerPoint uh, back in July, to use that in order to motivate people to get them on uh, lists so you can uh, so you can uh, hit them up for 
uh, mobilization efforts for campaigning. Right. So that's they're using the anxiety and the fear about reopening. And they're using that in order to get more political power. So it ended up with these two, uh, the union and, and these two parties in a face off. And they both needed an off ramp. This is the off ramp. And I'm sorry if all of the other essential frontline workers have to wait a few extra weeks. But the governor needs, you know, some he needs a political win here. So that's where we are. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this and we talk to a lot of teachers and I reiterate every time the majority of teachers do not belong to this group. They some right. are maybe mentally in lockstep, but a bunch of them um, uh, do not prescribe to this. And yeah. they recognize the amount of, um, you know, they, what's the word uh, respect that is being cashed in and squandered by this group for for what is going on here many of which who attacked me for for voicing that opinion said that they the one thing they weren't going to do was cut in line well now they're going to cut in line and they're all going to fall in line well it's not cutting so, in line if everybody cuts all at once with the well but, I, but but here's the thing they won't and this is the this is the point they won't and this will be the next sticking point because one they're not they're not going to get their they'll get their first jab or whatever and then they they got to wait a month and also if the population trends of teachers hold to that of the general population. Half of the teachers won't get the vaccine. <laughs> well, well, and I also wonder what kind of impact do you think getting all the teachers their jabs is going to do to the racial data? Because this administration oh, has been very focused on making sure that the equity is used in the distribution. They want it done you know, fast and they want it done equitably. Right. And so what they've told the counties is you got to have the uh, the vaccine distribution mirror the racial population in your county. This is how they're measuring whether or not you're not a racist county, I guess. So you got to make sure that you're giving it to everybody in equal uh, allotments proportionate to their representation in the population at large. Well, what happens when you start when you start vaccinating all these teachers? Because as last time I checked the demographic data, it's been a year or two, but it's a predominantly white female category. And so what happens now? Does that blow up all of your proportional vaccination plans? Do you think do you think because they were getting heavily criticized right off the right off the bat? And uh, just with the effort and the, the rollout and, and the seeming lack of a plan, really, on the part of uh, the governor and uh, and Dr. Cohen, do you feel that they've improved with these kind of mass vaccination centers? I mean, I'll give credit where credit yeah. is due. I'm getting less people, you know, sending me emails about the absurdity of getting appointments canceled and all of that. But do you think it's improving at least like they they might be on a on a, on a right track minus the the racial stuff you just brought up. Right. So I said this uh, when they first shifted gears and they had uh, they got a lot of flack, like you said, for when they canceled appointments because they took these doses and they moved them to the mass vaccination sites. And uh, and I said, look, I from the very beginning of all of this, we are everybody's learning as we're going. Right. I think Dr. Uh, Congressman Greg Murphy said we're building the plane while we're flying it. So I want to give latitude, and I think we all should give latitude as new information becomes available and you realize, okay, this thing wasn't working, this approach wasn't working, so let's shift. And by shifting to the mass vaccination sites, the key here is speed, right? You want to get as many people vaccinated as fast as possible so we get to herd immunity as quickly as possible. Now that everybody's 
sort of uh, in agreement that herd immunity is something we should try to get to? Because I'm old enough to remember when people mocked folks for mentioning herd immunity as a goal. But anyway, uh, so the va- mass vaccine yeah. sites, I'm fine with. Yeah. I, and I think that's good. They should, if, if they realize like that's the best way to get more people vaccinated quickly, then good for them. Now, the, I mean, and I'd say asking too much of a politician, anyone, any politician to say, you know, did you mess up <laughs> in the first approach? They're not going to admit that. In fact, I saw Cooper did an interview. I think it ran a total of like 11 minutes with the uh, Axios Charlotte folks. And, uh, you know, he blames it all on Trump and, you know, the Trump administration. That's why everything was all screwed up at the beginning. But um, I, I think, look, if they if they realize there's a better way to do it and they adapted, kudos to them um, for doing so. I like how it, it's Axios now. It just became Axios, yeah. and they've already gotten more questions than established right. uh, other alternative <laughs> media. Um, I know this is a little outside the realm of North Carolina, but holy crap with that Cuomo, uh, 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 Andrew Cuomo's secretary. Right. I mean, if, again, do you Trump's think anything fault. comes of Trump's that? Trump's fault. It's, all, it's, it's Trump's all Trump's fault. fault. <laughs> but here's, but my, th- my theory is, is people go, why would he be stuffing him in there if he knew it was the wrong thing to do? And I guess my theory, and I don't think I came up with it, but I like it um, because it makes sense, is Cuomo hit that point where he realized the media had – he was the foil to Trump on this. Correct. They were the the opposite ends of the spectrum. And so that's why he didn't use the ship. That's why he didn't use the Javits Center because Mm -hmm. those were things that Trump provided, and he was going to be damned if he was going to create a scenario where it even at best case scenario looked like they worked together because he enjoyed the stroke he was getting, especially from his brother, I might add. Yeah. It's kind of gross when you frame it like yeah, that. But, it was a wordy well, thing. Also, but do you think anything happens to this guy? I mean, he admits to holding withholding information ahead of a DOJ investigation. No, I, I, I but I don't ever expect anything to happen particularly to Democratic elected officials. That's my expectation. Now, I would very much love to be pleasantly surprised and proven wrong, but uh, generally speaking, no, I don't expect anything to happen to him because why would it, right? I'm like, honestly, why? I mean, think about it. You had, you've got, what was it? The lawyer working for the FBI that literally doctors warrant applications to get wiretaps on an incoming administration. And Mm -hmm. what did he get? probation. Right. So no, I don't expect anything to happen to Governor Cuomo. Now, I think maybe you've got some Republicans up there that are going to try to impeach him over this. I don't think it goes anywhere because again, you know, rule uh, number three. I don't think they can impeach in New York. Oh, well, that would that would throw a wrench. Well, who cares? In today's society, really, what what are rules? I mean, honestly, that's a very very good point. Yeah, I'm sorry sorry for falling into that. (laughs) Follow the rules trap. Right. I mean, who cares? Uh, so it, you know, maybe maybe they try to get him out or they try to do a recall petition against him or something. Um, yeah, it just it it is amazing how uh, how corrupted so many people's thinking became because of Trump pro and con. Like everybody viewed everything through the prism of Trump. And that's what happened with Como. Also, don't underestimate the fact that. You know, the guy's a raging narcissistic sociopath. And so when you kind of, you know, put that into the mix as well, he's getting all of these accolades and he's getting all. I mean, the guy wrote a book about I mean, what kind of a person does what he did and then writes a book about how fantastic his leadership was like that's a sociopath. Right. So now you're falling into the trap that he actually wrote the book. Oh, that's true. My bad. That's a very good point. (laughs) But he did get a what? Seven hundred fifty thousand dollar advance on that. Oh, I don't know. 
That, that's like I uh, that was the number I saw. Yeah, that's like board op money, right? That's like what your producer's pulling down, I think. Oh, Ross, absolutely. You know, it's really it's gonna be. You think it's all fun and games until you're trying to do the show and he's screaming at you like like you're Rocky, right? And he's doing his best Billy voice the whole time in your ear. Three hours, you're gonna love it. Oh, great! Um, so every year, every year it seems that this there's, this one bill ends up uh, in the North Carolina legislature. Well, every biennium anyway. Um, and it is this, hey, can we finally transition legal notices from printed newspapers to the Internet? Because have you heard of this thing called the Internet? And every year I got to read all of these op-eds by all of these newspaper writers going, this is a horrible idea. And it's a kick in the teeth. And why would they do that? I'll bet. Uh, you know what I would like? I would like what is essentially 5% of my entire revenue just gifted to me by the government every year. Right. That's roughly the equivalent to what it is for most newspapers, about 5% of their bottom line. Yeah, and this is just all of the legal notices and the like for you know advertising meetings. And I, like, I cover and have covered government meetings for over 20 years in this state. You know how many times I looked at a newspaper <laughs> to get information? Right. Zero. There's never been a need for me to go to the paper and find the meeting schedule. Um, and you know, all you need to do is post it. Um, and look, uh, like this idea that it has to be their platform, uh, is and and it's got to be taxpayers supported. Uh, I mean, it, it's pretty on brand, really, <laughs> for for a lot of the people and the way they behave. It is pretty on brand. Uh, and it's one of the arguments I made for years about NPR uh, and public radio affiliates. Uh, yeah, I mean, they may not get a lot of their annual budget from uh, taxpayer funded sources. But it's still a little, and I know a lot of commercial radio stations that would love to get an extra one percent. They could actually afford a new studio. Have you like you you you've been inside public radio studios before? You've been to the stations. They are they are sweet jaw dropping. Oh my gosh, jaw dropping. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like you're like my last gig. I was working in a place that had literally water pouring in from the ceiling, and we couldn't get money <laughs> to fix the roof. So yeah, like the 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 contrast between commercial stations and public stations that are taxpayer supported uh, to some degree it is amazing ross said he worked at a station in north carolina this was towards the coast where if you kicked one plug out of the wall everything went off and it was in what a double wide <laughs> the double wide trailer no it's a triple wide on oh, the triple beach. wide, triple wide oh, yeah I'm sorry it went no, it's a triple wide 200,000 watt simulcast flamethrower top 40 station and wow. the, the engineer said he said do not unplug that and i was like 18 i thought he was kidding it was from new york <laughs> it was an orange plug in the wall and he's like whatever you do don't touch that and i was like in the studio i'm like i gotta touch that right so i un unplugged it and i shouldn't have unplugged it because they both it all went out it went out yeah <laughs> Right, like the entire the entire campus just just shut, shut it down, down man. <laughs> I, I remember when I worked in Minnesota. I'll tell you guys a truly impressive uh, public radio setup is Minnesota Public Radio, and it was lar largely due to the fact that they had uh, Garrison Keeler would operate out of there. Mm, the yes, Carol Theater. Oh, NPR. I, remember, I, I worked at an NPR yeah. affiliate. I know the legend of Minnesota Public Radio. You guys were the the golden child. And I remember walking in those studios in every individual, like every show's got an individual studio. Never mind, they're not on. At the right, same time. right. And and they're all they're all both broadcast and performance studios. You know, they, <laughs> so I want people to envision when you see somebody in a recording studio, like uh, you know, here's Britney Spears doing her recording, right? Or or here's voiceover for The Lion King. It is that level 
of equipment in there. You look at the microphones, and they're multi-thousand-dollar microphones right. versus the standard, you know, the the ones that we all use, the RE20s. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. All right, well, enough reminiscing. Check out PeteCalendarShow.com uh, for the podcast. And like I said, you'll be sitting in Tuesday and Wednesday next week. So, um, you know, enjoy uh, working uh, with Ross. Uh, I yeah. appreciate it. I'll be trying to keep the microphone as warm as possible for your return. <laughs>